You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I never expected to see you again. I'm like a bad penny. I always turn up. Step back now, Dr. Schneider. Give Dr. Jones some room. He's going to recover the grail for us. <laughs> Impossible? What do you say, Jones? Ready to go down in history? As what? A Nazi stooge like you. A Nazis? Is that the limit of Eurovision? The Nazis want to write themselves into the grail legend. Take on the world. Well, they're welcome. But I want the grail itself. The cup that gives everlasting life. Hitler can have the world, but he can't take it with him. I'm going to be drinking my own health when he's gone the way of the dodo. The grail is mine. And you're going to get it for me. Shooting me won't get you anywhere. You know something, Dr. Jones? You're absolutely right. Dad. Dad. No. Get back! When you're dead, the healing power of the Grail is the only thing that can save your father now. It's time to ask yourself what you believe. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. I'm so excited to be here as we are going to be diving into the very last Indiana Jones movie that we have to cover. As you all know, as listeners, we have kind of covered them a little bit out of order. And so we will be wrapping up tonight with The Last Crusade. And I am so excited to welcome back none other than the masterful John Mills. Ah, masterful. Thank you, sir. It's a, it's a pleasure, as always, to be back in the 602 Club I uh, noticed that not only is my seat reserved, but now there's a little plaque next to it, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm a I'm a uh, bar patron emeritus. Well, I mean, you know, we already had your special Stein, you know, <laughs> and so we figured we needed a plaque there so people would know. No, this seat is specifically formatted for John Mills <laughs> and his backside. Yes. Please do not ruin that. Do not sit on this seat. So, yes, uh, there are a few people here in the 602 Club who have that honor and definitely glad that you do and excited to talk about this one. Um, hey, before we dive in, though, uh, just a reminder to everybody that you can find the 602 Club wherever you get your podcasts. Now, uh, one thing that you can do to help the show grow and to help other people find the show is give us a star rating review, specifically over there on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Um, it really does help. 
us, uh, and it, it helps more people find the show. So if you like the show, you want more people to find it, um, give us a star rating review. And heck, share us out there on uh, Twitter and Facebook. You'll find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the Listeners Only Discussion Group, which is on Facebook. That's a place where you can talk to all the different listeners from around the network in one place. It's a great place to hang out. Uh, and so if you want to get there, type Babel under the search field in Facebook and you'll find the group. Or if you're on our website at trek.fm, which is a great place to peruse as you can check out all the different shows and all the different show pages. Any of those show pages, you hit discussion on the menu bar and it'll bring you over to the listeners-only discussion group. And then last but not least, if you wanted to send us an email because uh, you enjoy email forms of communication still, uh, which is the new snail mail, I, I've, I think, um, you can also uh, do that. So go over to track.fm slash contact choose a show choose the 602 club uh, i love getting the emails honestly I'm, I'm i'm not kidding it's so much fun to hear from listeners like that so uh yeah hit us up now john something that uh i you know i we're not the only podcast ever who has ever talked about uh the last crusade but i was doing a little bit of research because i was i'm always curious to see how these films come together and some of them are more straightforward than others you know uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is pretty straightforward you know George has a story you know with the Lost Ark set up um, you know Temple of Doom they struggle with for a little bit but you know they they really try and do something different it gets dark and weird and you know uh, we already talked about that one this one though was something to which began a pattern, honestly. George had an idea of what he wanted to do. He wanted to do the Holy Grail. And Spielberg was like, no, I, I don't I don't want to do that. That's too esoteric. Um, and I think that's really interesting because in, in that kind of happens in, you know, the Crystal Skull where he's like, I want to do aliens. And Stephen's like, no, I don't want to do aliens. And it ends up finding its way that George ends up talking Stephen into it somehow. <laughs> yes, he seems to have a skill and, for that. <laughs> um, just like he talked him in. No, you don't want to do. You don't want to do Bond. You know, you 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 want to do this. Yeah, you know, Indiana Smith. <laughs> um, and uh, but I thought it was interesting because I was looking at some of the rough drafts for this film, and gosh, it could have been really different and weird. Like it's weird. Yeah, there are a lot of, um, you know, stages, I guess. I, I think that once, I think that you see with the Indiana Jones series, especially with some of the ideas, and granted, Lucas can be a bit, you know, once he gets his MacGuffin in his mind, that I want to make my movie about that. I, this is what I want it to be about. And that's that's fine. I'm not offering that as a criticism. But along the way, they definitely have uh, tossed some really, crazy ideas and you also read about the different uh script writers that have come through and written treatments or even full-blown screenplays that they just read and they said eh, it's not going to be this one and it's really something uh just the way that it goes through and you see i think it, you see the fruits of somebody who is a very creative person having more time to think in some sense because as evidenced by his own desire to, to you know, rework some of the things that he wasn't happy with his own films and stuff like that, 
I think that Lucas likes to really think about things. And I think that probably contributes to that sort of development process where he needs to hear it. And he, it's probably what makes him such a fun collaborator to work with, especially for writers, because he, he wants to hear everything you can throw at him and then just mold it from that. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you get these uh, amazing scriptwriters come in. I mean, Chris Columbus mm-hmm. comes in and writes a script, and it's interesting, to say the <laughs> least, yeah. um, involving uh, a monkey king, a cannibalistic African tribe, all of these very strange things, a um, Garden of Immortal Peaches. I mean, imagine that as the title, Indiana Jones and the Garden of Immortal Peaches. Uh, yeah, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't really resonate. Millions of peaches, peaches for me, you know, I mean. And now it just got worse. There you go. Yeah, it did. Um, uh, and then you get like, um, Mena Reyes who comes in, you know, and I mean, he Mm -hmm. worked on, uh, Color Purple and Empire of the Sun, and he's the one who's actually able to, and he's credited with Lucas, um, with the story to help kind of shape this and what it's going to become. But even before they totally get to what they're going to have. Um, I mean, one of the ideas was that Indiana Jones was going to battle a demon at the Grail site. Mm-hmm. And like he would ascend to heaven and like it was going to get freaky. What's really interesting about that idea is, of course, Last Crusade comes out the summer of 89, which gives us Batman, which gives us uh, yep. Ghostbusters 2. And which gives us Star Trek V, another movie where in its concept phase, uh, Kirk winds up battling demons. Our hero winds up actually battling demons. So it's so fascinating that these two very different franchises at some point were both discussing going and battling the devil, basically. It's a fascinating consistency between the two of them, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and and what's, what's very interesting, honestly, is that you know, um, one of the things that I, I noticed about this Indiana Jones film, apart from all others, is that this one has the most religious overtones to it. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. And you even see that in the story treatment series. They kind of like, you know, that second one um, with uh, Mayus as they're trying to figure it out, right? I mean, there's some really crazy out there, you know, spiritual plane things that they're going for uh, that don't make it into the film in the end. But, I mean, it's like they were really swinging for the fences with kind of a much more, I would say, as Spielberg thought, kind of an esoteric Indiana Jones story. Yeah, there, there's also, I, and I think you, you see their desire as, as it gets refined and finally gets to screen, uh, something that very much shows their desire to keep it as non-denominational as it can be when you're talking about the Holy Grail right. is yeah. when Brody says the search for the Grail is a search for div- for the divine in all of us. Yeah. Yep. Like they, they very clearly throw it out there in the final version of everything. You mm-hmm. may not believe in this thing, but this is and so therefore just treat this as an adventure because it's about searching for what's important inside, which is the mm-hmm. same way yep. that Star Trek V pulls its punch at the end um, and talks about finding God in the human heart internally instead of having it be an outward quest and everything. So again, 
I, I know that I'm probably upsetting somebody out there who's listening, but there's another parallel with Star Trek Five. I'm just saying they both come out in '89. You know, sort of there you go. And Sean Connery was well, another no, commonality. And I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I think what's going to be interesting there are there's we're going to kind of get into a section uh, a little bit later as we kind of dive into some of those themes. And I think it is fascinating to kind of see where this movie takes us. But also, I think the most interesting thing, and as we mentioned in our review of uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, this movie is kind of the pivot point for Indiana Jones as a character. Mm -hmm. Um, From going from, I would say, a more agnostic character to one who believes. And what he completely believes in is, is, you know, I mean, it's pretty non-denominational, I would say. But the idea that he has begun gone from being somebody who just thinks of these things as facts uh, to being somebody who thinks of this stuff as truth. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating journey for them to take mm-hmm. this character on because when you put all the films together, they make this really f- interesting character arc of somebody who is, you know, in the beginning kind of out for money to being somebody who completely kind of believes in the the tales and myths and the legends and really takes those things seriously in a way that he never would have, you know, 30 years ago. And I, I kind of love that because it's a great job of showing the progression of a character whose mind is, is open to the experiences that they're having and allowing themselves to be open to change. That's a, that's a nice, it's just a nice thing to see in, in a film franchise. Yeah, uh, it is. And, you know, especially in the context of everything that Indy has gone through is it's not even about subscribing to a specific faith about a specific thing, because of course you have the Shankara stones. It's about, like you said, and they have the line again, you know, in the movie, you know, facts versus truth is being open to the idea at the very least that there is something greater than the material plane. And so Mm. the first Mm. material plane that Indy has to overcome is money itself, you know, fortune and glory. And then he continually goes through this whole idea. And I mean, even the aliens, it's an interdimensional, it's a higher plane of existence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what are all of these different things? How do they play in with each other? You know, I I think... it's it's definitely worth just going ahead and jumping into the Indiana Jones, you know, and, and what's fascinating is that at the beginning of the movie, he still has so much to learn because everything he says in his classroom is wrong. In the movie, we'll play that out. Archaeology is, he right. says, is the search for fact, not for truth. Well, we're going to find out that um, truth is actually the thing that leads Indiana Jones to not dying. Um, uh, you know, the ideas about Lost Cities, X never marking the spot. Well, that's wrong. Um, and the idea that he says, you know, you can't afford to take mythology at face value. Whereas when we hear the stories that get told to us about this grail legend, well, they turn out to not to be legends. Right. And so it's almost as if like every single instance of what he says there is wrong. And I, I love that the movie deconstructs that. To actually say, and I I wanted to bounce this off to you, so if Indiana Jones is learning this lesson, do you think that Lucas, in his Lucas way, is trying to do the same thing he was kind of doing with Star Wars, which is to say, it's not something that's that's antiseptic uh, fact, like that's devoid of, of context and, and reason and all of those things. Um, it's, it's getting down to the ideas that truth 
is what gives fact meaning, you right. know? Um, and, and I really, I mean, I think it's so strong in this film to see Indiana Jones deconstructed in so many ways to, to, to move past this idea that everything is just about these kind of, um, cold facts and it's it's like no uh it's it's um it's almost like cold facts and heart and warm truth come together to create something new and, right. and meaningful well and i think that uh there's even you know a a kernel of that conversation uh reflected in when he is on uh the the airship with his dad and it's very interesting because Indy gives, you know, they give the, the two versions of the story where, you know, you were distant, you didn't hang out with me, you didn't do these things, I didn't have a normal dad like every other kid. And then you hear, uh, you know, Henry Jones Sr. say, I never told you to wash behind your ears. I never checked up on your homework. I gave you all of the freedom and independence that you wanted. And if you were to ask any kid... They'd say that's what they wanted. And then you find out, to speak to the point about fact and truth, that that's not necessarily what you want. You want involvement. You want connection. You want to be together. You want to be part of your family unit. And you want it to be cohesive. I mean, you know, at a, at a baseline, that's what everybody wants. And so I think, you know, I think you're right. Just the fact that every step of the way echoes this this conversation that starts in his classroom about fact versus truth and how they can diverge, but mm -hmm. the truth isn't always really what you think it is and, and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. I, I really, I really like that. And uh, again, I, I think the real beauty and strength of it becomes this, this idea that truth gives context to facts in a way that you, if you just have facts and you don't have truth, you are missing something and you will miss something. You will miss what is truly important then in the end. And so, yeah. and that's the thing that where, and, and I like the, the way that there's, um, there's a sense of, of, of father and son coming together, but they both, I think still under, uh, they, they learn to understand each other in a way, and they help each other learn, way, whereas Indy becomes uh, a believer in this grail, where his father has always been a believer in it. And they come to that, and they kind of help each other come to these different realizations about things, in, in the same way that, you know, his father, Henry, learns he needs to be a better dad with the time that he has left. Like, he needs to be involved in his son's life. He needs to be uh, he needs to know his son, you know, mm -hmm. the moment when he thinks he loses Indy, you know. Uh, and so what I love is that it's not just Indy that has a lot to learn. It's Henry that has a lot to learn and that they go on this adventure together. And it, the whole adventure is more about bringing them together as father and son as much as it is, you know, trying to, you know, keep away the, the, the you know, darkness away from from the grail i just i i think it's such a it's it's the the thematic elements and the, the character work here it make this movie something very unique i think indiana and jones series you know and i i think that it's also an extremely interesting um it, it's an interesting sort of thing because if you apply some thought you can see that 
Indy's gravitation toward Abner Ravenwood has to do with his own estrangement from his father, so he's looking for a father figure. Yep. And while it's while I try really hard to hesitate, and it it can be very much too easy sometimes to say, oh well, this is clearly you know an allegory for Lucas's relationship with his dad. It's very universal. I think every everybody who has a relationship with their dad finds some at least a grain of truth in the way that, you know, Indy and Henry relate to each other and the difficulty mm-hmm. that is there, you know, as, as you get older and you start to see things differently and you, you don't always see eye to eye. And there's a, a an urge sometimes to prosecute the past um, right. as opposed to, you know, living in the present and stuff like that. But uh, you know, I, I do think that you can very much you could very much extrapolate because he is executive producer on these things that that Lucas manages to make sure that the script reflects some of the stuff that he was was working through, even if subconsciously. You know, just in the notes that he gave to Kasdan and Raiders or to uh, you know to, to everybody in in the journey toward the Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know what I was thinking, too, as you were mentioning that, is the way that, uh, you know, at the time this movie comes out, absentee fatherhood is becoming a bigger and bigger issue in our society. And mm. that that idea of, you know, Henry think he's doing what he his son wants and what his son needs and, and his son saying, no, I, I you know, I kind of wanted you around, you know. Um, and them coming to that realization together, I think is, is really a, a beautiful way of kind of addressing even what's happening in the culture. But at the same time, like you said, also addressing many of the things that Lucas himself had been doing for quite some time, uh, with the Star Wars series, obviously. And then Mm -hmm. of course, you know, even now we get into the Indiana Jones series and, and that idea of, of fatherhood and and what it means to be a father and to have a son and to pass on manhood and all of those kind of things is is a fascinating thing to see play out you know um and it's interesting to see lucas continue that theme after he had finished the original star wars trilogy and then do this in a little bit different way you know um and uh and, and give us just another you know perspective on fathers and sons and the struggles that can be there because what's different here too is that this is clearly a father who does love his son he just you know doing it on his own he doesn't completely do it in the way that's probably best for his son um yeah and part of that's just that they never have a conversation you know as yes (laughs) like henry like indy says last time we had this conversation i was drinking a milkshake right you know right (laughs) and i you know i um I really think that there is something magical because rewatching it this time, the chemistry between Sean Connery. So, you know, in a sense, at the very least, Steven Spielberg did finally get to direct Bond. So, mm-hmm. you know, he got that opportunity. But it's marvelous to watch and mind bending to know that there's really only about a decade between. Sean Connery and Indiana yeah. Jones. I'm sorry, and Harrison Ford. And it's it's so funny because 
they slide into that chemistry of father and son extremely mm-hmm. easily. There, there is a natural spark between the two of them, and I, I struggle to think because of how central, of course, it is. I, I can't possibly put another actor in that role that plays off of Harrison Ford so well, and I think, I think no. that it's very easy to overlook because the slapsticky stuff people always are junior. People overlook those heavy emotional scenes. Connery really adds to that and and really propels mm-hmm. it forward. And I think that's why so many years later we talk about the relationship between Indy and his father yeah. and why even some people uh, were disappointed that Henry didn't come back for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It stung a little bit because you liked yeah. him. You wanted him back. I thought, you know... I- to, to to kind of pinpoint for me the scene that I think is the best between the two of them is the moment where Indy isn't dead and mm-hmm. yes um you know Sean hugs him and he's like I thought I lost you boy and he's yep. like I thought you did too sir and yeah. the fact that he calls his father sir he has the respect for his father I think there's something really beautiful about the way that this relationship works. Indy shows respect for his father, even though they have had a strained relationship, he still has respect for who the man is to him. And I think he also understands that his father does love him. It's just never been easy for either of them to kind of show that to each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And therefore, again, that respect um, is is something that I think is just so important. And, And I... You know, in a world w- that we live where it's so easy to disrespect anybody that we feel like hasn't treated us the way that we feel like we should be treated. Right. You know, Indiana Jones shows us a completely different model, which is to say, no, that person still deserves my respect. You know, um, you know, obviously, look, I'm not saying that there aren't times where people can lose our respect, but Indiana Jones realizes that that line has not been crossed by his father. Um, And in that moment, they really come together. I I think there's also an interesting echo because the first time they encounter each other, he says, yes, sir. And it's, it's almost militaristic. Like it's a trained Mm -hmm. response. And the way he says, sir, in that moment when they're hugging is a much sweeter sort of thing. So you can see how the delivery, the performance you know, really drives home how the meaning of that word has changed over yeah. the course of the film. Yeah. And I want to bring this up too. You know, we've just kind of been, I love this because we're just kind of flowing from one subject to the next, but I feel like the, the relationship between father and son really culminates in this whole idea of what do you believe where Indiana Jones is truly has to face what he believes about this stuff and it's through that almost spiritual awakening that father and son truly come closer and closer together till the end where, you know, Indy's hanging on the the ledge and his dad's got him. He's like, Indiana, let it go. And it in 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 so many ways, there is this sense of of Indiana's journey to becoming a believer, uh, like his father is, uh, in these kind of things has also helped them come to an understanding of how to relate to one another 
in a way that allows them to to meet each other in a place where they can hear one another. And I thought that's really beautiful to see the way in which the the belief in the spirituality helps lead a father and a son to a to a much better place in their relationship. And by the end of the film, you know, there's there in the resolution of it the the kind of i guess the salvation of it is for these these two characters to have found the illumination of each other well i i see i i look at the uh the scene where indy is reaching and it's interesting because looking at it with a more critical eye it actually dovetails into one of the the few criticisms i have of the film and it's it's not the moment i'll, I'll back into that but in that moment uh, Indy is still trying to be the dutiful son, trying to win the approval of his father. Mm-hmm. I can almost reach it. I can get it for you. I can get that golden cup for you. And it's, it is Henry saying to his son when he says, let it go, it will never be as important to me as making sure you're all right. And I think that yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. the real for me, that's the real emotional wave in that scene is mm-hmm. the fact that Henry says so softly, so sweetly, let it go. He doesn't yell it. He doesn't. He says something so, so honest that it just I, I, every time I watch the scene, I just get hit with this wave of emotion because, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it yeah. just it, it has shades <laughs> of. Uh, it has shades of um, I did not have a difficult relationship with my dad, but that sort of moment reminds me of him because my dad was always very certain to be gentle with me and my brother when it needed to happen. He he, he had a very gentle touch in the difficult moments. And I think, again, that is a scene I would point to. I can't tell you another actor contemporary with when the movie came out or even now that is going to deliver it. And, and I think Sean Connery does not get as much respect as sometimes he should as an actor because people think, oh, it's just mm-hmm. James Bond. It's like, no, you know, there he had a real gift, has a real gift. Yeah. He hasn't left the world yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. he has a real gift. And I, I think that makes that scene work. But to get back to the aforementioned just to sort of back into the you know one of the few criticisms i criticisms i have personally i think that scene works better and has more impact if elsa doesn't do the exact thing beforehand um because it's too quick for indy i like i i don't I'm not offering this to say it's bad or I dislike it. I don't like the fact that Elsa does it and then Indy does it immediately afterward. I would rather have the scene have been set apart in some way so that it was purely just Indy and Henry having that moment. Um, I, you know, like I, I understand why it happened that way and, and those sorts of things, but that's, that's just one of those things where if I had my druthers, I'd maybe have sanded that edge down a little bit. I mean, I I can see what you're saying there. I I think for me it always worked well enough. Sure. Um, be, because uh, what I liked was is that how difficult it is 
uh, in that moment, you know, where Indy is in that same moment that Elsa was, right? Where it's whatever it is that I want that's in my grasp, I can almost reach. But reaching it is also could kill me, you know? But I'm I'm willing to, like, make that, you know, like that, that ridiculous compulsion that we as humans have to do the worst thing for ourselves just to get something that we think we want but probably isn't good for us anyway. You know, there's that whole thing going on. I, I, it, to me, it's that kind of spiritual side to that. And Indy going through that at that moment shows just how enticing that idea is, even though you have already, you have literally just seen the, you know, repercussions of doing the exact same thing and so i uh, see i think that what it is i I, again it it doesn't ruin the movie i don't dislike like it's just it's one of those things where i just think it i i would have revisited it a different way but i think it's really because Mm -hmm. uh the the echo is that not not echo but it's an offshoot it's a symptom of the fact that i really think that the confrontation between Indy and Elsa should have resolved differently or even resolved and come to an end in Berlin. I think that when she carries forward from the Berlin scene, there's just a lot of sympathy for her character that is gone. I mean, obviously the sympathy for her character is gone when you see her standing on the dais, but it would have been, I think, a very interesting sort of thing to have her find some way to either bow out of the story or redeem herself in some way, like suddenly switch over and help them, um, you know, achieve the goal or sacrifice herself in some way that, co- you know, like I just I think that would have been a more satisfying resolution to the character than the way that it went. So I, I really think that any sort of nitpicking I have with Elsa after that point just stems from the fact that I think they had a, I mean, that scene between him and her in Berlin is beautiful. It, it's, it's moving. It's stunning how well it plays. And then it just seems like after that sort of the, the gas is out of that engine a little bit. And I, I just wonder what they could have done to make it, work a little better you know part of that i think has to do with that to me and and why i was thinking about this specifically while i was watching the movie today because you had mentioned that um behind the scenes on the other side of the bar and i I felt like that that elsa represents the um so coming into this whole idea of what do you believe you know indiana jones literally has to go on this um this whole kind of spiritual quest. Um, and if you look at each of the steps that he goes on, it's, it's actually, it, it's almost, you know, uh, step by step, the idea of conversion to belief, which is, you know, first is penitence, right? Uh, and then that's bowing, uh, before God, realizing your place before him, uh, in the Word of God, you know, uh, realizing that the the answers for that you seek come through the Word of God, and then the the faith that it takes at the end, and so Indy walks through that right uh, and goes through the change of becoming a man who believes. Elsa doesn't make that. Elsa, Elsa walks the path without actually going through the emotional aspect that Indy's going through. Sure. And so 
the to me again what it what it works as is the person who is taking quote unquote spiritual things as just kind of a prize to be won like you're owed it and whereas for Indiana it becomes something that he truly accepts and and so that again that's why it just works for me is that it's playing off of those that that thematic element and you know how I love my thematic elements yeah I I just I I think there were I I just think there were maybe some different choices they could have made. And the thing is, I can't stress enough that it, it's it is a nitpicking sort of thing. It it in no yeah, way takes yeah. me out of the film. It in no way makes me dislike it in the in the least. It, it's it's just one of those things where you know when you revisit something hundreds of times, eventually you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna see the crack and you're gonna be like, ah, eh, you know, yes. I think maybe this could have been a little different. Um. And and that and what's funny about that is it's almost like a transference because for the longest time I had a problem with the way they portrayed Brody in this. I felt oh, it was okay. a betrayal of his character because in the first one he's the you know, he's the sage wise man guarding the the path to knowledge, warning Indy this is not something you should take lightly. And every scene he has has a, has a certain weight to it. Whereas in this, you know, it's goofy. You know, he can blend in. He knows a hundred languages. You'll, he'll be, with any luck, he's got the grail by yep. now. Hello, does anybody speak English? It took me a very long time to come to peace with that and actually come to like what happens with, with Marcus mm-hmm. um, in the film. So I guess maybe there's just a sense of transference of you know looking for the cracks like i i pasted over that one and i'm like you know what i'm okay with that now let me find another problem you know like and maybe that maybe that's something that we all do when we watch something i mean good lord the the movie came out 30 years ago and you know we've all watched it enough times that yeah you know we're just gonna pick at it yeah, you know, I was thinking about that too because I've I, with the recurring character specifically. You know, how do Brody and Sala, you know, work in this film, and do I feel like that they're well served? And you know, I think both of them um, are are used well, and it's a lot of fun the way that they're used because in in many ways they kind of get to be the they're more the comedic relief. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also was thinking about this too specifically in thinking about Brody is that, you know, earlier uh, Indy says something about his father. He's like, you know, he's he's a desk man. You know, he's a he's not an in the field guy. And the, and mm-hmm. that's the same thing with Brody. Like he is he is super smart in his own area. You know, he might not be obviously he gets lost in his own museum. Um, so he's not great with directions. But when <laughs> it comes to understanding these antiquities and studying them and all of that kind of stuff, the man is a genius, you know. Um, but he also has his limits and Brody definitely doesn't overcome those limits in this film. Whereas, you know, you see uh Henry kind of more able to almost become more like his son. And in many ways, you know, that relationship with the father and son, they become more like one another in in, in a lot of senses. Whereas Brody, he's the same guy. <laughs> that he, you know, like from yeah. the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, he's the same dude. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense for Indy and, and Henry to wind up very similar by the end because, you know, Indy turned out the way he did because Henry was his dad sort of thing. But yeah, I, yeah. like 
I, the way I initially came back and uh, redeemed the Brody arc for myself was I looked at it as here's a guy and he hasn't seen his old chum in many a mm-hmm. year. Yep. And he sees him, and we all get a little silly when we run across somebody we haven't seen in a while, you know? So that's how yes. I first came at it. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, And Sala, I never had a problem with the way they, they, uh, oh, no, they, yeah. they dealt with him in this. I, it's always such a joy to see uh, John Rice Davies on screen. He's, he inhabits his character. He's characters. amazing. Yeah, he like, inhabits him so he, well. You give him so little screen time here. But he he really is excellent. Yeah. Um. And I mean, I love his little like hero moment at the end too, where the only there's only a few guards left, and he's the one with the gun. He's like, ah, and they yeah. all drop their guns. You know, it's just there's just these little things I think that are 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 well done for these characters who have been recurring now in these films for three movies up to this point, and it's it's really nice, you know. Yeah. So, um, it leads me to a- want to ask you this though. And something that, again, that we've, and it wasn't even, you know, in anywhere near close to the, the 602 Club. We weren't even behind the bar. Um, we were outside the bar talking. Um, and we've talked about the opening um, before mm-hmm. and the ways in which it works and the ways in which, in some, it seems like it's doing a little bit of retconning to the Indiana Jones oh, yeah. character, especially with the Temple of Doom. So now that we're here, because we talked a little bit about the Temple of Doom, I wanted to ask you. We're both fresh. We both rewatched this movie. Um, I I just rewatched it today. I had actually rewatched it about a month ago because we did uh, this movie on Cinema Stories, and so um, it's really fresh in my mind. And I wanted to ask you how this kind of it it's the 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 opening credit sequence from a Bond film, basically with young Indiana Jones. Uh, I I mean I I think the the opening of this is. Uh smash you in the mouth, sell you on the film immediately. I still remember seeing it in the theater uh, for the first time and just, I I can't think of a single person who watches this opening and doesn't immediately fall in love with the film. It, Mm -hmm. it is, it's a tremendous short, uh, short film on its own. It really is The The whole thing from beginning to finish is brilliantly done uh, and beautifully shot. I mean, uh, Douglas Slocum, who did the he did the cinematography on uh, uh, Raiders and Temple of Doom? I think he just does some amazing work, especially with uh, you know w- w- with the the landscape that they start in and everything. And I just think everything about it is so perfectly done in that opening, uh, up to and including. I mean, it's funny watching it this time. It's where he gets the hat. It's where he gets the whip. It's where he gets the fear of snakes. And all I could think about this time, aside from enjoying it, is as soon as as soon as the dust settles, thinking to myself, oh, my word, the level of complaining that you would hear from fans nowadays if they opened a movie like this for a character, you know, where they where they solo. Yeah, essentially. Oh, he got all of that stuff from one thing. There's precedent for this. And it and if it's done well, it works and it's fun and it's why not just sit back and enjoy yep. the ride, and that is that is the whole point of the opening is just to sit back and enjoy the ride and I love so much the one uh, I mean you know so much about it but like that that transition that editing transition at the end 
where the guy says to him, you lost today, kid, but you don't have to like it. And he puts the hat on his head and then he lifts it back up and he's smiling during the rainstorm. It's such a beautiful moment. It's so perfect. And I, I think it's just, you know, here I've been raving about it. So and rambling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, it's an amazing opening. You know, uh, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that the opening is just so much fun. And the way that I kind of fit all of them together now is the fact that Andy loses. And I feel like kind of slowly drifts into becoming that guy, you know, that gave him the hat mm. that, you know, he ends up wanting the whip from. And it's obviously the Temple of Doom and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark arcs that bring him back to being this character because they all take place, those take mm. place you know, after mm-hmm. this. So those experiences bring him back to being the guy who's then on the Coronado which, you know, yeah. makes me wonder, was he really related to Coronado? And that's why he keeps taking it back. And Indy just hasn't researched <laughs> enough. Is Indy really wrong here? I'm wondering. Um, but uh, let's let's assume that Indiana Jones is not wrong and that he should be bringing this into a museum and killing that guy is not a bad thing. Um, so Yeah, it, it does seem like an awfully harsh punishment to dole out just for stealing oh, something, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. There's, there's like a, a law of proportionality that's sort of broken on that yeah. one. That's what I'm, yeah, <laughs> just I mean, I was thinking through that. Um, but all of that together, it I feel like it does flow well when you think about the the arc of the character and that, you know, yeah, going from the, the River Phoenix, Indiana Jones, to um, the Indiana Jones you see in the Temple of Doom, that kind of makes sense that that character, without the really real close relationship of a father might kind of turn into that guy that gave him the hat. And then those experiences that he has slowly turn him back into the kid he used to be. Um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful of, way to look at it. So, yeah. I, I do. I, so. I think that's a, a really beautiful way to look at it. And because you mentioned his name, it, it's really hard to communicate exactly uh, how big a star River Phoenix was becoming. And how this is true? How much of an impact was felt when he died? I mean, he was he was a big, big up and coming star. I mean, look, you know, look at this. Look at Stand by Me. Look, at, and he was a gifted actor. And it's so it's so sad because if you allow yourself to come out of the moment, or you know, even when it first opens and you see him for the first time. Mm-hmm. I can't help but have that little ping in my brain saying, what a damn shame. What a damn shame. What could he have done as an actor, you know, going forward? Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying that to bring to bring it down, but rather to say I'm glad at the very least that he has this moment in time yeah, immortalized showing what a talent he was. And I 100% agree because I think he nails the characterization of Indiana Jones here. Uh, the only thing that's wrong with it is his hair. They should have made him cut it so that it fit with the time period better. Eh, um, Indy was it, a rebel. It drives me crazy when he lands into the um, the lion's den and he has to like part his hair. And I'm like, this is the dumbest scene. Ugh, it just drives me crazy. And and it's just, it's just a little nitpick thing that's always bothered me. I just really don't enjoy, and this is something Steven Spielberg is very 
Um, he does this a lot where he inserts things into his films which are un well, I don't know if it's unintentional, but it 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 sets a time period on something that shouldn't have a time period. He does the same thing with Neverland and Hook. I absolutely hate it. Um, and he he allows that to happen here with his hair. And it's just like it takes me out of the scene because it's taking something that belongs to a time period but inserting something that doesn't belong to a time period in any way. It's just, it's that's my soapbox. And well, I uh, I would love actually then to sit down with you and watch an Oliver Stone film because that's got to be torture for you with how many, ina- like hair I can overlook. An Oliver Stone movie? Well, he'd have like rocket boots and a machine gun in 1912, you know, like yeek. Um yeah, it might might that might say a lot as to why I don't watch a ton of Oliver Stone films. Oh, they're still brilliant. <laughs> That's a whole topic for another time. That's a, they used to be brilliant. Anyway, but no. I aside from that, it 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 really is. I think the opening is like you said. I mean, I think this is as close to Spielberg ever gets as directing a Bond film. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it follows the Bond formula with some of these things. And the opening, the kind of the cold opening. Uh, like this brings us right in and I really enjoy how it kind of also makes the whole narrative structure the whole arc structure of where Indiana Jones is going to go in the end you know it it just brings it full circle the whole uh, the whole thing so it's it's great you know it it, it's it's interesting too um, just thinking in terms of uh, you know the, the way things are structured in the way that, like there there's there is a real sense here and i think this this might have been why it's so subconsciously off-putting to have a fourth film after this is it's so obvious that they went for broke here that they i think they had just resigned themselves this is it we're just going to go for everything and they threw in everything in the kitchen sink and there's such a sense of completion i mean you know he rides off into the sunset at the end of this film there's such a Which, sense. I don't know if you know, but that sunset is actually outside Amarillo, Texas. Yes, and if I remember correctly, I remember an article where they were talking about the filming, and it was it was part of you know some stuff. Like I eighty nine, I was just starting to get into the behind the scenes stuff, and I'm still a kid at the time. But like, uh, if I remember correctly, supposedly there was. A lot of cloud cover. They thought they were going to have to scrap the shoot for the day. They were getting ready to pack up. And then an hour beforehand, the rain broke. And they looked up and said, oh, my gosh, we've got it. And they filmed it. Like, right there. Like, they literally had, like, an hour of daylight left. You know, if the clouds broke, they would have had maybe an hour left to shoot this thing. And the clouds broke, and they were able to go for it. Um, I... I don't know if it's apocryphal, you know, or not, or studio legend put into an article in a premier magazine at the time or something like that, you know? Um, but that, that's how I remember the story being told. Yeah. And it's great. Um, you know, having been through Amarillo quite a few times in my life, uh, you can get gorgeous sunsets out there. So, um, it actually is a pretty beautiful place. So, Wanted to ask you, so this movie has some new characters, you know, and we mentioned some of them already, but I wanted, you know, the female lead in the Indiana Jones movie is always important, uh, much like who's going to be the Bond woman. And 
How do you feel like uh, Elsa Schneider stacks up against the, you know, uh, the other women that we've had in this series so far? Well, I can tell you at the time it was viewed as uh, an improvement over Willie. Um, well, yes. But never as good as Mary. Like it, it, in Raiders, you know, in Indiana Jones, there's the Marion Ravenwood scale. And how close does she get to Marion Ravenwood and how distant does she get from Marion Ravenwood? And I think she I think that the I think Dr. Schneider is an interesting enough character. Um, and I think that she's played well. And I, you know, I enjoy her uh, in the film, but um, she, you know, she doesn't knock my socks off in, in terms of in terms of a character. Although I, w- I have to give them credit, I think that that again, I go back again to that scene in Berlin. She plays it perfectly, absolutely perfectly, and yes. I think that is that in and of itself elevates the character. Is that interaction in Berlin is absolute brilliance. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I was watching her specifically this this go around, just kind of trying to pick up some little nuances, and she does some really interesting things. Where, um, especially once you know that she's been with Henry Jones Senior and Henry Jones Junior, and <laughs> and she'll do some just interesting things where she's just watching Indy do something. You know, and there's just this look of like inquisitiveness on her face or just kind of like picking up what he's what he's doing or just it, it's really just this um, kind of uh, almost scientific like research on this person. Um, and I, I found that really interesting to see her as an actress do um, and then to actually kind of, you know, with the, where the camera is, is is they're actually picking that up as well, you know? And so it, it makes for a really interesting look at, at who she is as a character. Um, but yeah, what I, the thing I love about her is that we have never had a female character in this series yet until this point. That's bad, you know? And, and Mm -hmm. she is somebody who is, um, just kind of amoral, which makes her very different from, you know, I think the other two leads, which is nice. Uh, but there's still a sense where, you know, Indiana Jones feels connected with her after everything that's happened. And so, um, yeah, I like her portrayal. I absolutely agree. You know, she is, she's better than, you know, what we got in, in the Temple of Doom. Um, and I, I think the character works for the film. Um, and I also have to say, I really enjoy Walter Donovan as the main kind of antagonist for the film. Um, because he reminds me a lot of kind of the Belloc character, where it's like he doesn't care about who he's working for. He has his own agenda. Um, and again, he's kind of like using the Nazis to get what he wants. And I thought that was kind of interesting. It, it, it made an interesting kind of mirroring for the original film. Well, it's, it's also very interesting to see General Veers, uh, once again, working to uh, help out Admiral Ozel. So, you know, that's, yes, a, that's a beautiful that's little true. echo yeah. that, that happens there. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, I will never uh, forget the moment that, you know, because, again, you, you know, you see it when, when you're much younger and everything. And then that first time you realize, hey, wait a minute. Oh, 
oh yeah, that's General Veers. Like it's it's the neatest moment in the <laughs> yeah. world when you have that realization. I'm so glad that nobody ever. Sorry if I'm spoiling that for anybody, but I, I'm so glad that um I, like that I was part of a, a group of people that could come to that realization mm-hmm. organically. And so, yeah. but what a testament to him as well, right? To be able to be this charming character and uh, a race. I mean, I, you know, by the, by the time this comes out, I've seen Empire Strikes Back how many hundreds of times already. And I still don't recognize General Veers at the drop of a hat. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he just he does a really good job with it. You know, I mean, because especially I feel like at the beginning and for I remember the first time I saw it, you know, I was fooled. Um, he seemed like a nice guy. You know, he seemed very interesting and and you know, somebody that I don't know, you know, and I was a young kid when I'm watching this anyway. So they got me then. Um, but I just think his portrayal is is great because at the end when he's having the whole conversation with Indy, he's like, I don't care about the Nazis. That If that's all you see, then how could, I mean, you're dimmer than I thought you were. Um, you know, I, I just want to live forever, basically. And, you know, they'll, they'll go the way of the idiot. Um, so I think uh, it's, he plays that role so well of somebody who is legitimately so selfish. He's willing to help the worst regime the world has ever seen just so that he can possibly live forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, it really makes him a, a great antagonist. Um, and it also makes him um, the worst version of what we were talking about earlier with Elsa, where it's like, this is just a prize. It has nothing to do with believing in it or, or anything. It's just a trinket to be used for your betterment. Um, it's <sighs> kind of makes him like the... Um, the uh, TV evangelists, you know, who's just yeah. using this religious thing to for their betterment. Uh, you know, a name springs to mind, and some people thought of the same name that I did, but I'm not going to say it. Um, but I, you know, I I also have to give him credit because he got, if I recall correctly, in at least one of the TV spots or trailers, uh, he got the the winning line. Um, Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Yes, which is yes. and the way he delivers it, I, I still chuckle even even mm-hmm. today, almost as much as I yep. chuckle at Harrison Ford pretending to be a Scottish lord to see tapestries. Oh, <laughs> what, yes, what a great! If you are a Scottish great. lord, then I am Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, How dare so he! Good. <laughs> How dare he! Oh, so great! Oh, well, it's it funny, is. especially because Sean Connery's in this movie, right? Exactly. And so, Oh, exactly. Gosh. I my favorite part is when uh, just just humor wise is when uh, Indy um, shoots them all up and he, and his dad's like, look at what you just did. I can't <laughs> yes. believe what you just did. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's just shocked. He's never seen anything like it. it's just hysterical. Yeah. Um, uh, or so, you know, speaking of shooting uh, and comedy um, out of out of, uh, you know, a dead deathly situation. Uh, when they're on the tank later and Indy shoots, you know, four guys with yeah. one shot and he looks at the gun <laughs> yes. like, what just happened? Yes, that was great. Yeah. That was great. Um, what did you think about the action in the film? Because that's always a really important thing in an Indiana Jones movie. And do you feel like the, the action sequences they, they gave us live up with, you know, the boat chase and the tank chase and all of that kind of stuff? 
Oh yeah, I I love the motorcycle chase. I absolutely love the motorcycle chase. Um, oh, so great when he turns into a jousting knight. Yeah, I mean, come on. Oh, and, and even the fact that that Spielberg has the sense to include a reaction shot of Sean Connery. So you know, because they're on a medieval crusade, and his son just became a, a knight. It's like that's kind of a fun moment, and you know, why not wink at the audience with it? Um, uh, yeah, I I love the motorcycle, but I also love the motorcycle chase because again, you know, they it, it starts off with them outsmarting the bad guys, setting the boat off, mm-hmm. knowing that they're going to go for the boat. Um, I really love. Even though the the effects on a small screen TV don't translate particularly well, and with all of the remastering processes and everything like that, that airplane chase, uh, you know, off of the dirigible is so much fun. It's so great, especially when you know Henry shoots up the tail of the. I'm sorry, they got us. Like yes. it's so, and, and you know the, he chases the birds up and everything. I mean, yeah, you know, I I'm, I won't go through a blow by blow, but I thought all of the action sequences. This is the, you're you are right. This is what you come to an Indiana Jones movie for, and that boat chase. I love that boat, boat chase. chase. I I have to say it's the best part of the film. I think because um, you know, I was thinking back through just you know good action sequences that feel realistic, especially in light of <laughs> Fallout. Yeah. And that boat chase feels very real. There's mm-hmm. never a moment where you're like, oh, that's just on a, some sort of, you know, water soundstage. It, it all feels very realistic what happens there. And so I, I think it works and, and you never feel pulled out like you do with the plane chase in the sense of like, oh, that's the insert shot, you know, mm-hmm. um, that that does not happen um, with the boat chase whatsoever. So that's just a fantastic sequence, and I just love the whole, you know, go between them, are you crazy? You know, yeah. and uh, that that bit is just fantastic. And so I really, you know, I think that this movie, in that sense, lives up to all of the other Indiana Jones up to this point, and it, it really, it has its own key sequences, you know, and, and, and I really enjoyed that the tank scene is very remin. It, it has the reminiscence of Raiders, yeah. But it's also different, and mm-hmm. so, uh, and and it's more about you know him having to try and outsmart um, this big nasty machine thing, you know, and 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 um, him and his father, and in, in the end, trying to outsmart everybody together, even though they can barely see each other or hear each other. You know, and so I I think all of that works wonderfully. And then on top of that, I think John Williams' music here, he just ratchets it up. I mean, from the beginning opening scene with that, 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 bum, 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 you know, like, oh gosh, he just, he is really bringing his A game and the music he has for, you know, Indy and his father, Henry is is beautiful um you know you can tell he actually uses some softer tones uh to to make this movie stand apart and everything and i don't know there's it's uh, john williams is just a genius you know what can you say well i mean let's look at it this way i and i think there's no way you can really have the conversation and and not i i think pick raiders first i mean i i think that's in terms of score 
one of Williams's untouchables, but like for you in terms of the four scores that we have, where does this one rank? Like if you have to give out a one, two, three, four, where does this one go? You know, honestly, I think the movies, and, and this has nothing to do with the quality of the scores, but I think they actually go one, two, three, four for me. Hmm. Okay. Um, Temple of Doom is actually very tight score. Like, it, it's really well done. Uh, I think, like, he uh, created some very interesting themes. Obviously, it gets dark, but the, the, I really enjoy Temple of Doom. I listen to it a lot. But I would say, honestly, that the score for the Temple of Doom and the Last Crusade, honestly, are, I think tied for second. They just are really good. Um, and I love them both. And you know, uh, that's that's nothing to knock off of the um, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, for me, I put Last Crusade a notch above uh, both Temple of Doom, which does have some interesting themes, and I, I like the Crystal Skull score as well. Uh, that's a tough one to say, but um, I just Last <laughs> Crusade, Last Crusade, Scherzo for. Uh, or Skirzo, I, I I always struggle with pronouncing that. For motorcycles, is is terrific. I think yes. that the um, the Grail theme itself, I think probably is what sets it apart because mm-hmm. yeah. it it belongs to the same family of music as the Ark of the Covenant, but it isn't that. It's its own. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It. Uh, I mean, we listen to them together. There really is a continuity between these two movies you know this and Raiders for sure so mm-hmm. um yeah I mean in the end uh you know kind of you know, we looked back at this one and kind of looking at it with uh, a critical eye in some places w- where we you know after so many viewings there are some things that have stood out to us um where do you rate this one and uh, what do you rate this one and then you know um what is your you think your final ranking then for the Indiana Jones series as well? Uh, I mean, this is four and a half um, magic boxes to escape from the caboose. Um, And I, uh, I I mean, there's not a bad one in the series. I, I, you know, like seriously, I, I'm, I'm looking at the, you know, the little Blu-ray collector set right now. And I'm thinking to myself, of all of the the things that I have in my collection, it's it's one of the ones where like the the outer packaging is starting to fray a little bit because if you want to just sit down and watch something, yeah, the yeah. only the only <laughs> heartbreaking regret that I have, the thing that kills me inside, is that there will be people that won't experience these on the big screen. And I think if there mm-hmm. is a series, yes, of course, Star Wars is up there. But if there's a series that is meant to happen on the largest possible canvas with the best possible sound system, the Indiana Jones series is right there in my brain. I heartily agree with you. I, I think, um, you know, this to me is is definitely the same ranking. You know, four and a half out of five. This is a, a fantastic film. It's just so much fun. There's so much joy to it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I think the thing that I really uh, love about the series, like you said, there isn't a bad one in the series. You know, uh, I even came to have a better uh, appreciation for Temple of Doom in our rewatch. You know, um, mm-hmm. that might be the least of the series for me, but I can still enjoy watching it. And I, I still love this series. And I, I agree with what you said. 
this is a, a series that I would love for them to re-release in the theaters and, and do a like mm-hmm. four-night thing or something. Because with the way that Raiders has been um, remastered, it actually looks better now than it ever did on this big screen with the way that they, they did that. The colors pop, you know. Um, all of these films look fantastic, I think, uh, still. And I think they just hold up because they have that sense of wonder and joy that Spielberg and Lucas were so good at being able to find in their movies like this. And their collaborations together, I think, are some of, uh, you know, the 20th century's best films. So uh, in in the sense of joy and and just excitement and fun, you really can't beat the Indiana Jones series. And so, yeah, I, I love the fact that we have gotten a chance to walk through this. It's been so much fun to do with you. And it makes me look forward to, you know, if they rarely ever do an Indy 5, uh, getting together <laughs> and, and talking about that. Um, so I, I will be uh, quite interested to see what they come up with. But uh, if anybody wanted to catch up with you, man, and, and uh, talk to you more about Indiana Jones or, or check out anything else that you're up to, where can they find you? Uh, just look for Kessel Junkie. I'm usually on Twitter. You can unearth uh, all of my prophecies there. You can also find me uh, over there on uh, the Nerd Party Network, actually. Uh, we're, we're retooling Great Shot Kid right now, but uh, you can find me regularly uh, co-hosting a little show with you called Aggressive Negotiations. It's a different kind of Star Wars podcast. And we have a great time over there doing that. Uh, you know, if you love Star Wars, um, really, I do think that this is the best show for you. Um, so make sure that you do check it out. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing the orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek D Space Nine. And then uh, you can also find me over on the Nerd Party uh, Network, um, not just on a show with you, but I do Owl Post with Drea Kaufman talking about the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, as I mentioned, I do cinema stories uh, with my friend Courtney. And we actually talked about Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and the themes there. And we've covered quite a few films uh, recently uh, that we've really enjoyed. It. Uh, one that we won't be doing here, but uh, we talked about Christopher Robin. So, yeah, if you like looking at films through the lens of faith, that's the place for you. But I wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now. You hear? Yeah.